Welcome to episode 18 of OT Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Justine Jecker, and I will be hosting today's conversation on reflective and reflexive practice with occupational therapist Monique Lisson. Today, we are particularly interested in talking about where our profession has come from and where we are going regarding the truth and reconciliation process, acknowledging that we are only two voices of almost 20,000 occupational therapists. Monique Lisson is a white, cisgendered, able-bodied female of settler descent, living, working, and playing on the traditional lands and territory of the Misagas of the Credit First Nation and the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat and Haudenosaunee. She is a registered occupational therapist in Ontario with a background in community mental health. Monique is also completing a Master of Public Health with a specialization in Indigenous and Northern Health at Lakehead University, and is currently a policy analyst at CAOT. In her work role, she supports CAOT's Truth and Reconciliation Task Force, which has a focus on working towards inclusivity and health equity on a national level. Monique's research focuses on identifying the current response to the truth and reconciliation calls to action by OT professional associations and regulatory organizations, and to identify next steps to engage and advocate for the role of the profession in reconciliation. <clears throat> I, Justine Jecker, am a white, cisgendered, able-bodied female of French settler descent currently residing on the traditional lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people in Hamilton, Ontario. I spent a decade working in Northwestern Ontario, servicing clients living in First Nation communities north and west of Thunder Bay and within Thunder Bay directly. My areas of practice have included forensic and community mental health, trauma-informed care, and the impact of vision on occupation. In the past three and a half years at CAOT, I've seen the establishment of the TRC Task Force, the collation of some Indigenous health resources on our website, the recognition of the first TRC day in September 2021, and a shift in the competency requirements as seen in the new competencies for occupational therapists in Canada. Ten podcast episodes ago in November 2021, we looked at how OTs engage in the delivery of culturally appropriate healthcare services with Indigenous occupational therapist Jennifer Bertoni. One year later, we take a moment to reflect on where we've come from. At its core, reflective practice occurs when someone reflects on what they have learned and how they can apply it or learn from it whereas reflexive practice involves reflecting on what someone has learned by considering the implications of their learning and how they impact the broader context in which they work. With this in mind, welcoming Monique, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your research journey and what you've learned about how our profession is engaging in the understanding and doing of truth and reconciliation. 
Thank you for that introduction, Justine, and, and great question to get started. Um, I, I was thinking about how to, to share my own journey um, related to Indigenous health and, and truth and reconciliation and, and thought that I might start at the, the beginning, which was in 2014 when I completed a placement in Sioux Lookout in Northern Ontario um, at the hospital there. And it was my second OT placement and it was part of the NOSM, so the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. And Prior to starting that placement, I, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about Indigenous health or the role of OT um, in working with Indigenous populations, but quickly learned um, that I had quite a few knowledge gaps and, and some gaps to address. Um, I specifically remember working with one uh, client individual that um, I was doing an assessment with and, and trying to do, you know, to ask about different occupations, so mostly related to, to self-care. And I was asking this client about toileting. And I wanted to, you know, knock the assessment out of the park. So I was trying to be very professional and ask the questions using appropriate language and quickly became uncomfortable because as I was asking about, you know, toileting and, you know, how the bathroom was set up, quickly learned that the client did not have a bathroom. Uh, when they were living up north, um, I asked different questions about, you know, what does, you know, bathroom and toileting look like and, and came to the conclusion that um, the, the actual individual did not actually have indoor plumbing, didn't have electricity um, and actually used um, the bush. And so this was kind of my first really pivotal learning experience that something with practice and, and what I had learned how to practice um, wasn't going to be generalizable to all the different populations that I could be working with. Um, and, and then another experience with the same client as well, where again, I was asking questions and, and trying to, you know, build rapport and, and be engaging and, and have the client engage with me. And the client would not make eye contact. So I was trying to position myself in the room to see if I could, you know, have them maybe look up, maybe glance, try to make them feel more comfortable. I wasn't really sure exactly what was going on. Um, and following um, an interaction, had a debrief with my my preceptor and learned that that actually can be part of of a, of a cultural aspect, right, is, is to not make that eye contact. So I, I quickly learned that what I had learned in school or how I was practicing, again, wasn't going to be applicable in all scenarios and that I probably wasn't actually practicing in a safe way and was making probably some pretty big mistakes that now in reflection, I look back and, and, and cringe a little bit. Um, but I think talking about reflective practice, those were some key learning pieces for me. But at the same time, I wasn't thinking about what my positionality was or the power dynamic that I had in the relationship with the client. I was more thinking about cultural and diversity and how they were different from me and I was different from them, but not really moving beyond that. Um, so fast forward a little bit to my my final placement that was in Brantford, um, Ontario, Six Nations, and being excited to meet a new team um, of, of occupational therapists and physio uh, therapists and speech language pathologists, some of which were Indigenous. And I was excited to learn or, or share some of the knowledge that I had learned at my placement up north uh, and quickly was put in my place that the knowledge that I had learned up north necessarily wouldn't be applicable to the population that I was working with um, down south. So this is when I first started to think about how I do need to think about some of my power relationships, what I bring to um, an interaction with a client and, and what I've actually learned in school and quickly learned that again, I had some knowledge gaps that needed to be addressed. And from that, um, actually created um, a survey with another student to actually pull my, my class um, at McMaster to determine was I the only one that had these knowledge gaps or were there other knowledge gaps um, that were present for, for occupational therapists or student occupational therapists and quickly learned that our, our class was missing um, information related to, to Indigenous health. 
Flips. One thing that's interesting <laughs> listening to your story, Monique, is you know you graduated from the program a year before TRC was released. Yes. And you and you talked a little bit about positionality and not feeling like that was not part of um, the the experience back in 2014 when you'd sit down with a, a client. I'm wondering if can you share a little bit more about positionality and at what point over your career did that start to make its way into your practice with clients? So I think with positionality, I think back to what are my biases, my implicit biases, what I'm bringing to the table, um, you know, what are those power dynamics that do exist when we're working with with different clients? And, and I think it does go back to that critical uh, reflexivity and, and critical reflection that I think with those experiences on practice, I was just trying to be reflective and, and recognize that there was something missing. But then shifting more towards clinical ref reflexivity, what are my biases and, and what am I missing and what am I potentially doing or doing that could be harmful in an interaction with, with a client? Um, and I think where I started to think a little bit more about positionality was probably when I, I joined the OT and Indigenous Health Network through CAOT. In 20, 2017, um, I was attending the, the PEI conference and there was, a, I think, an invitation to a lunch to, to join the practice network. And I, I knew it was a knowledge gap, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about Indigenous health. So interacting with uh, different occupational therapists, having different discussions um, with these OTs that were Indigenous and non-Indigenous is when I started to realize that I was, I was missing something in practice, um, that, I, that I did have these knowledge gaps. That's yeah. And when we look at the time frame, you know, we're talking five years ago and it's it's incredible because it's so short. But also I, I feel that we have lived through so much in such a short period of time. Um, and positionality is one of those things that for me, ha having reflected over 2022, what does it mean to position yourself when we look, look at the term truth and reconciliation, I really feel that positionality is part of the truth component. Um, all of us having the opportunity to speak our truths and in different ways. Um, one of the things I've shared briefly, I think previously on the podcast, but I want to get into more today is that when I moved to Thunder Bay in 2009, I started to pick on this. I, I didn't know at the time it was called positionality, but this is what we were doing. We, you know, um, meeting with elders, meeting with uh, chief and band council when we'd go into the communities. And the very first activity you engage in is talking about who you are, where do you come from, where do your parents come from, what's your story. And in those early years, I was learning how to do positionality without knowing that that's what it was called. I just thought this was our kind of relationship rapport building time where we get to know one, one another a little bit more uh, intimately. And it's been interesting to see that progression over time because I feel um, I, I feel now it's become quite complex. Uh, mm -hmm. where even just our opening statement for the podcast, there's kind of this list of, of adjectives that we use uh, when we give a positionality statement. And it's something that depending on the week, uh, some weeks I feel very comfortable and great about sharing and other weeks I don't. And I also have realized that the audience is a really big one. Um, how we position ourselves with who we're talking to, you know, why are we saying what we're saying and why are we sharing what we're sharing? I think that the rules haven't been written to this yet because mm -hmm. a very short time ago, 
uh, not that many years ago, this would have been considered inappropriate and over information sharing. <laughs> I'm wondering for you, you know, did you ever experience that as you started to develop, you know, these positionality statements or how, how you started to change introducing yourself? For sure, I, I think so to, to also kind of add a bit more context. So doing um, a master's of public health through Lakehead University and, and working on my my thesis, which is to determine um, how the OT profession across Canada is responding to the TRC calls to action and specifically focusing on the professional um, associations and the regulatory organizations. And as part of my, my thesis proposal, I had to write a, a positionality statement. And this was something that was fairly new to me. I haven't had to write it in, in other other, you know, papers or other, you know, documents or reports that I've, I've written. And I would have to say that it was probably um, the hardest part of my thesis proposal was to actually sit down and reflect and think about how where I've come from and, and my background, how that actually is impacting how I see things and, and how I'm doing my research and how I'm looking at my, my data. So it wasn't necessarily maybe uncomfortable as I, you know, have prior to starting my thesis, had done a lot of research with Indigenous health, so was aware of how, you know, social determinants of health and, and how healthcare is, is impacting that population. Um, but to actually figure out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and how I wanted to make sure that it had meaning um, was, was difficult. And some of the students that I've worked with since um, doing my thesis proposal on, on other various projects, so students that I've, I've worked with from uh, McMaster University on different projects, um, we've had lots of conversations about, again, writing those positionality statements and talking about positionality isn't easy and it, it takes time and it takes a lot of thought and, and reflection. Absolutely, and it's it's a term that I think is going to require ongoing clarification depending on where you are and who you're with. I know recently watching some student presentations at the beginning of their slide, they have the introduction of what they're talking about, a land acknowledgement, and then um, in their third slide, the term positionality was used. And in this series of presentations I reviewed, what was meant there was actually it was it became synonymous with the term conflict of interest, which I thought was very interest interesting, because. I've never considered the term positionality to replace the word conflict of interest, um, but I do think it is something that will require ongoing reflection um, in terms of, you know, I felt when I was in the North, when we gave information about ourselves, it was for the purpose of building a therapeutic relationship. And also to, like you said, disclose any biases or things that might be construed as <clears throat> this is important information that this person should know about me before we begin working together. But I don't know if that's how we do it right now, you know, working especially virtually and we acknowledge the lands we're on, even though we're all mostly uh, at the association in this virtual environment. Uh, but it's really going a step further. And I think getting into what do we want people to know about us and what should they know about or what should we know about them so that we can mm -hmm. we can have an open and, you know, candid and safe conversation. Mm -hmm. And and it's something that I've noticed more so in academic papers as well, is starting to see the authors situate themselves before, you know, writing the, the rest of their manuscript or writing the rest of their paper before sharing their research, because by setting that stage and saying this is where I'm coming from and this is how I'm viewing the world and viewing my research um, provides a lot of information about how the reader perceives that that information and how we, you know, make meaning from from the, the research and we can see where there, there may be potential biases um, 
or where they are writing from a different perspective. So if it is an Indigenous author writing an Indigenous paper, um, you know, we can take different meaning from that as opposed to knowing, you know, zero information about who is writing the paper and what research they've done and why they've done that research. Absolutely. Yeah. Being able to disclose names openly and freely. And mm -hmm. I think that was one thing I shared um, in early podcasts about the research I engaged in with for my doctoral work was um, the patients, clients, people involved in the research wanted to be identified. And, and that was actually a huge cultural distinction between Western ways of knowing and Indigenous ways of knowing is why would you take my name off of this? If I've given you permission and consent to be part of this journey, then I am part of this journey. This is me <laughs> who you're talking about. And that was, for me, that was a tremendously powerful learning. Um, how do we acknowledge and respect people? And of course, there's different types of research and not every, you can't ever use global statements. Not all people who don't follow Western ways of knowing want to be identified. Mm -hmm. But even knowing that that's an option is really important. And I think it's it's changing how we engage in labeling on, you know, any peer-reviewed articles, on even magazine articles, things that are being printed, um, but allowing the opportunity for acknowledgement is definitely huge. Mm -hmm. and, and valuing that knowledge and, and the knowledge sharing and knowledge translation. Uh, I know thinking of clinical practice, often when we're working with, you know, clients and, and, and doing research, we are interacting with people at a vulnerable stage, right? And they're sharing this vulnerable information. Um, so I think if they're comfortable being able to to provide that that safe place to to share that information and also value um, that information as well and those stories. Now, in your research, you said you were looking at TRC calls to action and you know, we, we, we spoke a little bit about this idea of positionality, maybe being linked to sharing our truth. Reconciliation is really the bigger, I think, I mean, they're both big terms, truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But I feel that when we are talking about calls to action, there's really that drive towards these actionable calls are, are wanting us to get to a state of reconciliation. And I'm wondering, are there some pieces in your research you're comfortable sharing today uh, with the audience about what do we know about OT in Canada and this idea of reconciliation? Mm -hmm. um, one one piece that I've always gone back to when I'm doing research or when I'm um, reading different articles is, is back to a statement made by Gail uh, Restall and um, other authors as well. I can't remember if it's a CJOT article or OT Now article, but it's from 2016. And she said that as OTs, we do have a professional, moral and ethical responsibility to respond to the calls to action. And if our profession does not respond, that silence is complicit in upholding colonial structures and relationships that perpetuate the marginalization and oppression of Indigenous peoples. So that's something that when I read that back in, in 2016, it sort of stuck with me that we, we have a responsibility to act and we have a responsibility to respond to these calls to action and a shared responsibility. Um, so whether we're an individual occupational therapist or a part of a, a collective, um, this is our, our responsibility. And uh, another piece that I, I do think about um, at, before I get into a little bit more about my research um, is the idea that Indigenous ancestry, right, is, is a determinant of health, which to me when I first read that also doesn't make a lot of sense that your ancestry can be linked to, to your health and your health outcomes. Um, but I think it's important to note that ancestry isn't inherently connected to health. It's it's connected to, or our health outcomes are connected to those people that are put in power, right? Or have power to change systems or to, um, you know, implement different policies and practices. So it's not necessarily someone's in Indigenous ancestry. It's it's the 
health system that they're working within or that they're a part of that is creating marginalization and, and oppression. So, so thinking of that, which I, I learned about, you know, again, the social determinants of health and thinking about how we have this moral responsibility to act, um, I, I wanted to look at what our profession is doing across Canada on a, on a national level to respond to these calls to action. And some of my outcomes have been focused on, you know, the need for collaboration. So whether it's, you know, OT organizations, national organizations um, collaborating, whether it's on a provincial level, um, a local level, regional level, whether it's with the universities and also, you know, OT organizations collaborating with non-OT organizations, right, to, to have this collective response to the TRC also looked into building these sustainable relationships and that was a, a big theme as well within my research is as OTs we need to figure out how to work together with with Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to work to, together towards reconciliation so building sustainable relationships with Indigenous OTs within within our profession but also um, with Indigenous peoples outside of our profession also, another outcome was governance and operational structures and how that can impact um, the process. So are there Indigenous representation on committees, on boards? Right? Do they have any power when it comes to decision making? Or is it non-Indigenous people that are often you know, implementing these policies and practices that do impact the, the OT profession? And another big theme was learning and unlearning. So as occupational therapists, again, in order to you know, work towards reconciliation, we first need to know truth. We first need to know, you know historically what has happened in, in the past and, and potentially how our profession um, you know, could be adding to the harms that Indigenous people um, do experience on a, on a daily basis and, and how to work towards culturally safer practice. And then the last theme um, was decolonization processes. So how can we decolonize our, our policies, our programs, our structures that again um, might be barriers to accessing health or barriers to say even Indigenous students right entering into the OT, OT profession. And that was just a really quick kind of highlight of, of the main themes from, um, from my research and, and where we need to, to go. Um, but overall, what I did find is the OT profession is incredibly motivated and, and you know, open and, and willing to engage in this reconciliation process. Um, it's just about taking it um, one step at a time um, because there is also this, this fear of making a mistake and, and stepping out of line and, and not being sure what and where to go. But again, overall, a motivation that we do and an awareness that we do need to work together to work towards reconciliation. Well, that's it's tremendous. The amount of um, information, knowledge, themes that came out of your research. And I really appreciate you sharing it with us today on the podcast. I want to I want to look at a couple of things that you said, the, one of them being this idea that decolonization is part of the reconciliation process. And that's something um, I would say for me, probably back in 2012, 2013, I was in the process of switching jobs, um, working in the hospital and then moving into the community setting. And you, you, you very quickly, when you're working with Indigenous populations in the North in a community setting, you, you kind of become aware of how the systems are colonial and how they keep reinforcing this, the same sort of outcomes that we're trying to get away from. And it's it is interesting to use the term decolonization because it for me that's a spectrum. It's a term mm -hmm. that you know there's there's different ways in different extents to which we can decolonize. So um, an example being uh, okay, having our first TRC 
day uh, and acknowledging that we uh, should be thinking about when we celebrate other types of national holidays, such as Canada Day, Victoria Day, Civic Holiday, the impact that those days are having on Indigenous persons in Canada, but also around the world. Um, that That's kind of that's almost like a step one of decolonization is creating space and then recognizing the impact. And I think when we look at critical reflection and reflex re reflexivity, that's that's kind of the reflection piece. Mm -hmm. I feel that when you start to get deeper into the decolonization phase, so uh, giving land back to Indigenous persons, revitalizing language practices, um, creating government programs that support Indigenous uh people to get their old occupations back in ways of knowing and traditional engagement, social activities, those forms of decolonization are really moving into the critical reflexivity realm where you're aware of the impact and now trying to address how that's done. And I feel on the far end of the spectrum, this is where my brain has a hard time understanding how far can we go, right, in this mm -hmm. Uh, you talked about collectively responding to the TRC calls to action. That's something that I, I do wonder if that's truly possible. I feel quite often the most powerful examples are usually uh, smaller groups that are doing mm -hmm. it and they lead by example. But for example, if we're on the far end of the spectrum of decolonization, that would mean, okay, here are the keys to my house because I'm literally on the land that, you know, we took from you and and this is how I decolonize, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and that might be seen as an extreme form, but not really when, when we when we really understand what that word means. And so I, I think for all of us, we live in a time where we have to understand what are we capable of, and, and this is where it's a journey because um, you might be in that critical reflection phase where just um, being able to take time on September 30th for TRC Day or on June 20th for Indigenous Persons Day in Canada and being able to reflect that that's part of your journey. But knowing that you can continue to build and grow on those processes towards reconciliation. And I think we acknowledge all these different traditional ends that we are currently living on. But when I, I think as part of that acknowledgement, knowing that what is it, what calls to action for those groups of people, those in in whose lands we're occupying, what do they expect as part of the re reconciliation process? So really tailoring it towards where you live and and the people that you're directly impacting. Mm -hmm. For sure. And and I think it's about figuring out even, you know, what small steps you can take towards, you know, reconciliation. So I know right now in the advocacy department at COT, we have a student that's working on a land acknowledgement um, project and, and she's looking into the meaning and importance of land acknowledgements because they've become a bit of a tick boxing exercise, right? So at the beginning of a meeting or an event or a conference, um, everyone, you know, states their their land acknowledgement and, and recognizes the land that they are on, um, which I which I think is a great step and, and it's a step in, in the right direction. Um, but I know according to the research and literature and what I've also experienced is they seem to be again something that's more, you know, I'm ticking a box, I've got that done, you know, let's move on to, you know, introductions or move on to the next step of, of the event or the, the meeting. And 
I think taking that time, slowing down and saying like, what actually is a land acknowledgement? What is the meaning behind it? What's the importance behind it? What elements or components should be within um, that, that statement? Um, and, and according to the research, it needs to acknowledge and respect the original inhabitants of that land, that land that you're on. Um, but also there has to be that personalized element that social accountability or the accountability to to not only what are you learning and what have you researched related to the lands that you're on, but what action are you going to take moving forward in, in order to work towards reconciliation? Because we know reconciliation isn't necessarily an outcome, right? It's a journey. It's something that you know isn't going to be an endpoint. That when we get there, we know we're there. It's it's this ongoing process. So I think thinking about all the different little actions that we can take, and, and maybe not little actions, maybe bigger actions too, that work towards work that process. And so I'm wondering then, Monique, um, in previous pod podcasts, we've talked about equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, we've talked about this idea of the global OT, having global knowledge and being able to apply this understanding of many cultures locally, even if you haven't traveled around the world. Do you feel that TRC can be built into everything that we're doing or, you know, does Yes, dedicated time and space are needed, but what would it look like to be integrated and mainstream so that this is just part of what we do? Mm -hmm. I think there are certain principles that we absolutely can apply that are related to TRC and related to the calls to action that can be implemented in, in everyday practice and, and actions. So the, the principle of nothing about us without us. Right, so the idea that if it's research, if it's program development, if it's policy, if it's going to impact Indigenous peoples, we need to have those perspectives at the table. And as occupational therapists, do we need to make sure that we're inviting, you know, Indigenous peoples or Indigenous occupational therapists to the table um, to share their perspectives and to not just to share their perspectives, but actually have power in decision making as well, right? To influence those the the, the development or the co-creation of again programs, policies what whatever you know the topic of, of hand is um so i think that's that's one way that we can integrate um you know trc and, and this idea of reconciliation um within um, our practice and, and actions um and i think that ties in too with acknowledgement of indigenous rights right and recognizing that they do have rights to land they do have um, inherent rights that we need to be re respectful of and to also make sure that again those are those are forefront when we're having these these conversations and, and when we're taking action. Um, and another way, um, you know, is indigenous ways of knowing is making sure if you're in a clinical setting or non-clinical setting, again, respecting that they're going to have um, different perspectives and, and different ways of being and different ways of doing that those need to be forefront, you know, foregrounded and, and, and at the table when, again, we're having these, these different conversations. And again, whether that be connecting with Indigenous occupational therapists and, you know, consultation or engagement with Indigenous elders um, or knowledge keepers, we need to be respectful of that, that knowledge as well. That's very helpful. And I think it does tap into um, the individual role that we all play. And it's, Having the new competencies released, I, I say new, it's been a year, mm -hmm. <laughs> November 2021, it's been a year now that uh, we've we've had this exposure to these competencies, but, you know, it, it really, all of us have the opportunity to look at our role and decide, you know, what are, what are we capable of doing? Mm -hmm. um, is it within our own self-awareness and knowledge and understanding? Is there something we can incorporate as part of our day-to-day -day being, whether they're positionality statements, land acknowledgement statements? 
Um, I, in our opening, we talked a little bit about the examples that I've seen at CAUT in three and a half years, and it is monumental for me um, because having come up or come down, I should say, from Thunder Bay to Southern Ontario, it was quite the shock in 2019 uh, to kind of see the state of affairs, not necessarily at CAUT, but I think just truth and reconciliation was still being unpacked at a very slow rate. And I feel mm -hmm. that 2020 helped to expedite uh, that understanding tremendously because we were kind of pushed into the realm of equity, diversity, inclusion, but also Indigenous health and, and at the national level, being able to have a day, a TRC day, um, really change the conversation, I think, for the average person to be able to talk about, you know, what, what does this mean? What is it that we need to do? What, what are, exactly are we recognizing? And, and then mainstream conversations were taking place. So talking about the residential schools, talking about the 60s scoop, um, talking about certain policies that continue to be colonial, um, decolonization, sorry, decolonizing our uh, documentation practices, which came up in the last two uh, CAOT conferences mm -hmm. for specifically in occupational therapy, how we continue to create, um, we continue to colonize with our language if we're not careful. And so there have been some pretty wonderful examples. And um, we have our, our two chairs of our TRC task force that have been with CUT the past three years. We're just on a closing no note now, Monique, but I'm wondering if you can just say a couple of words about Angie and Karina, because they have done such tremendous work at CUT and just something our listeners should know. For sure. So I've actually had the, the privilege of, of being able to listen and learn from Angie and Karina. I think I joined the OT Indigenous Health Network since 2000, I think in 2017. So I've been able to to listen and, and learn uh, and, and listen to their perspectives and what they're experiencing and what they're seeing in their communities and how they continue to talk about how OT is this profession that you know we we are well positioned to engage in reconciliation and and work towards better health outcomes and more positive health comes for Indigenous um, people and then being able to you know be co-chairs of the TRC uh, task force and that the work that they're doing on on a national level but also when they recently you know were sharing the the work that they've done um at wfot in, in paris and and sharing about the importance of of collaboration and 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 partnership and really spending that time and, and slowing down to build that foundation of relationship with with ot's um, indigenous and non-indigenous ot's and then now moving forward, focusing on building connections with with communities and indigenous communities to make sure that our priorities are aligned and that they're they're working um, towards reconciliation in a good way that is in alignment with with indigenous um, values and, and perspectives. Yes, and on that note, the community engagement, it's something that you and I having having both had our connections through the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. You know, that was a huge part of practice in northern, northwestern Ontario, even northeastern Ontario, and it is across the country for sure. I think this is definitely the next step is ensuring that we are connected with our communities, uh, that we know what's happening locally, and that we we offer our assistance and understanding to, to help move things forward. Because like you said, this is, an, this is a journey that will continue for all of us. Um, uh, many Indigenous and First Nations communities believe in seven generational thinking where to have impactful change, it takes seven generations before that happens. And if 
we are the first generation to begin in this process. It puts into perspective the the time it will take to heal and to renew the relationships that this is not. It will be our great, great, great grandchildren who are experiencing the benefits of what we're doing today. So it has been such a pleasure chatting with you, Monique. You've worn so many hats over the years, uh, working with the Indigenous Health Network, the TRC Task Force, having worked yourself as an OT in First Nation communities in Northwestern Ontario. Uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Is there any um, way that people can reach out to you if they have questions about your work or wanna just chat more about Indigenous health? So listeners can contact me using CAOT's advocacy email, so advocacy at CAOT.ca, or are more than welcome to connect with me or contact me on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you for the opportunity to chat about this. Thank you.